The thing that most developers face and have a difficult time wrapping their head around is that you really do need to take a closer look at the way your application is interacted with from the user perspective and then on the back end to the data. You as the developer get additional levels of flexibility because you ultimately control the way the data is laid out. So you have to understand how and what data is accessed by the application. Hi there, and welcome to PodRocket, a podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket helps software teams improve user experience with session replay, error tracking, and product analytics. Try it for free at LogRocket.com. My name is Paul, and joined with us today is Michael Lin. Michael is a developer advocate over at MongoDB, and he's the host of the MongoDB podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited because today we're going to talk about MongoDB, which a lot of people have heard about, a lot of people have either tooled with or talked about, and how it kind of relates to the RMDBS world. Good old yeah. Postgres and relational and some of the differences between that. And we're going to even step into a conversation about migrating between them and some of the things you might want to watch out for. Before we get into nitty gritties and details and talking about migration, for folks who are tuning in for their first time on the topic of MongoDB, Maybe they've heard of it, not really sure what the selling point of it is. What is MongoDB and why is it different than Postgres? Yeah, it's a great place to start, I think. MongoDB is a database at the very top level of the hierarchy. And you might be thinking, okay, so there are a lot of databases. I've stored data in MySQL, Postgres, SQL Server, Oracle, whatever you're used to using. Those are all relational databases. They all use tables. And in those tables, you have rows and columns. And that's a a data storage approach that was created somewhere around 1970s, like 50 years ago, something like that. Wow. That's long when you put it into the timeline perspective. Right? (laughs) Isn't it crazy? Right. So this guy, Cod, who worked at IBM, gave a lot of thought to what the most important things are and where money goes when we develop architectures for computing and software. And he came up with this set of rules for laying out data. It resulted in COD's rules for data normalization. And the goal for COD's rules was to maximize the ability to store data and reduce the amount of times that you duplicate data. So you don't want to duplicate data when your disks, when those disks that COD was using back in the 70s, that disk space was ridiculously expensive. So naturally, The rules that he developed were designed to maximize efficiency on data storage and reduce the amount of times that you're duplicating data. Normalization results in highly efficient disk storage mechanism. Now, as time has progressed, the cost structure for software development and the stack of things that you put into developing an application and launching it into production has changed. What's happened over time is Disk space is on its way to zero. We're watching where it used to cost thousands of dollars per megabyte. It's now getting close to zero, right? We're in in the cloud. SaaS-based service architectures are offering data storage mechanisms that it's approaching zero. So where we used to maximize for disk storage, we're really looking at a different cost structure now. What costs more, Paul? If I'm looking at the amount of money that I spend to develop an application, it's not in disk space anymore. What do you think it might be? 
It's got to be the people, Michael. It's got to be the time and effort put in by your team. Exactly. Exactly. So developers cost more today than they did back then. So what do we do to impact that cost structure when we're looking at developing an application? We want to make it easy for developers to store data. Well, along about 2009, 2010, Elliot Horowitz, the founder of, of MongoDB, along with Dwight Merriman, they were working on some large-scale data projects. And they decided to come up with their own data storage mechanism, and they wanted to make it fast, efficient, flexible, and easy to use for developers. And that's the key thing right there, easy to use for developers. I think that's been the overarching principle for MongoDB from the very beginning. How can we make it easy and flexible for developers? So MongoDB's architecture differs from those databases that we talked about earlier in that it's not relational. You can express relationships between data elements with MongoDB, of course, but it's not tabular. You're not storing data in rows and columns in a table. You're storing data in what's called a document. It's a document-oriented database. So what does a document mean? What does it look like? Are you familiar with JSON? I'm familiar, and I'm sure most people listening have worked with JSON. Yeah, so it's an object, right? So in code, you manipulate objects. These are key-value pairs. In JSON, they're key-value pairs. There's The keys are always strings, and the values, they can be... In JSON, it's pretty straightforward. They could be numerics. They could be strings. They could be some other minimally flexible data types. But with MongoDB, we store data in those same types of documents, like a JSON document. But on disk, it's written in a format called BSON, a binary represented form of JSON. And the reason that it's binary is that JSON is relatively limited in the data type support. And Elliot and the team that developed it, they wanted to be able to support more flexible. Like, for example, dates in JSON are stored as string, right? You want to be able to actually recognize that it's a date type. So in disk, on disk, when you're storing data in MongoDB, it's stored as a date type. And you store it as a string, but there's some extra bytes that are stored right alongside that field. And so that's a document-oriented database. And I think the key behind this is that it is flexible. One of the key tenets of a document-oriented database is that it's polymorphic. It supports polymorphism, many shapes, polymorphism. When you compare that to a relational or a tabular database, it's really difficult to store different numbers of columns in the same table, right? You can't do that. Like you can't have one row with 10 columns and the next row with 12 columns. Right. It just doesn't work that way in a table. But with a document, you can have one document for each user and one user can have 12 fields and the other user can have 10 fields. Now, that's polymorphism. And the reason that you might want to support that is that in code, you're going to be maintaining what data is captured and stored in the database. So you as the developer decide what that schema what the shapes of your documents look like. And that makes it super easy for developers because at any point in time, I can go into my code, change what the application is capturing from the application user front end and store that in the back end. Now, you might think like, well, how does that happen? Imagine I create an application and I'm capturing users, for example. I'm storing user data. Day one, I get an influx of users and I decided early on as an application developer that I'm going to store the user's name, their address, and their contact details. And I'm confident this is going to be it. This is going to be a great application. I got 200 users on the first day. And I realized as I'm looking at the data, 
I'm capturing the user's name. I captured it as full name in one field, Michael Lynn. That's one, one field. But then I want to like sort on last name of user. Oh, damn. I could write a transform. I could write a, a query that splits apart the username. Or wait a minute, why don't I just go into the code and add a new field called last name and separate the username field? And when I do that, I push my code to production. Day two, we launch, we're opening for business and people begin to register. And now there's, there's a, a new set of data in the database with username consisting of first name, last name, two separate fields. Now, what happens to those day one documents? They're still there. They have 10 fields. Day two, I've got documents with 11 fields. Now, that may blow your mind if you're a relational developer because you're used to a schema that restricts and has a uniform structure across the rows in your tables. It doesn't have to be that way with MongoDB. So now what happens to those day, day one documents and day two documents? What I like to suggest when I review a customer's plans for their data schema, I always ask them to think about this scenario that the structure of your documents, the schema of your documents with MongoDB, it doesn't exist in a schema per se, separate from the database. It exists in the documents themselves. So we call this schema on read. On an atomic level for the document? Yeah, exactly. So the schema only exists when you look at the schema. <laughs> right. So I can determine what the structure of the documents are by looking at the structure of the documents, not by looking at some separate schema thing. So I ask folks to think about this and include a second field, a field that represents the version number of the schema. So in my first example, I've got 10 fields for user data. I'm going to have an 11th field for the version of the schema. Now on day two, as I modify my code to include a separate field for last name, I'm going to increment my version. This is the schema version. So now I know as I look at the data that exists in my documents, Version one documents exist and version two documents exist. And if I want to do a transform and clean that data up and make it uniform, I can then write some transform and, and update the document structure for those day one documents, version one schema. It's just good planning to think about the fact that your schema is going to change over time. And as developers, we are responsible for that. Not a separate DBA. We get to control what that schema looks like for our document structures. I can almost relate this directly to sort of like how you might build out a Firestore application. Exactly. They have a document-based database. And something that I personally have never done is thrown a schema field into my documents. Mm -hmm. And that sounds great because you have a written down field that's like pedantically telling you that this is a different image from another document. And it kind of saves you that whole transform step of introspection. Exactly. That's kind of making the, the mind shift from relational to, to documents. Another thing about the mind shift from relational to documents that I want to zero in on is like as somebody who comes from the platform operations C and Rust world, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to sell me on personal. Mm -hmm. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to sell me on convenience, even though like it's tried and true that the cost of developers is the big cost. So you're kind of like walking this line about like, I don't want to buy something that I don't need an abstraction layer I don't need. But one thing you presented this conversation with from the very beginning is we're not talking about just how we access the data or how it's organized, even though it does play into that. At a fundamental level, we're talking about what are the business concerns with what is valuable when we store things. And it shifted from storage to 
engineers. And I think that mm. is kind of like this overarching rule that it's like, this is why this is valuable. It's not because it can read like it. Some other access method can read 50% faster. Nobody cares. Like disk is cheap. CPU is cheap. We're caring about the quality of the team, mm -hmm. our lubrication between teams and how fast we can develop tomorrow, you know? Yeah. So that really helps wrap my head around the value add of MongoDB in a way that I feel like I haven't been able to pinpoint before. We stepped into talking a little bit about schemas and how data stored in the document model. And if people are listening, you can probably notice like, yeah, this is fundamentally different. I'm sure a lot of people listening have messed with document databases and they're, and you know, they're like, yeah, that's a different camp. I either drink this Kool-Aid or that Kool-Aid. And mm -hmm. the whole point of this episode, we're going to kind of, break down that barrier and we're going to talk about moving from a tabularized relational database into MongoDB. Yeah. Before we hop into that really quick, I just want to remind our listeners that this podcast is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket offers session replay, issue tracking, and product analytics to help quickly surface and solve impactful issues affecting your user experience. With LogRocket, you can find and solve your issues faster, improve conversion and adoption. And like we're trying to focus on in this episode, at the end of the day, have your engineers focus their time on building a good product. So go check out LogRocket.com today if you want to go learn more. Well, stepping into the more technical side about the follow-up of MongoDB and the difference between relational if I have a relational database, Michael, mm -hmm. like I'd say the last two personal projects I started were using Prisma because I wanted to check out Prisma and how it interacted with Postgres. Love Prisma. Yeah, it was a good experience, but maybe I'm like, okay, there's another developer who's developing with me now on my side project and I don't want to manage relational. I don't want to manage migrations. What's the first step for me to like move into a document-based database from my Prisma schema? Yeah, I think it's it involves looking at the data that you're storing and how it's referenced. And look, like I'm not here to sell MongoDB to everybody. I think if you're leveraging a tabular database today and it's working for you and the scale is such that you're not concerned, good for you. That's I love that. Like I'm not here to like I said to sell anybody anything. But if you are concerned about your ability to scale and you want to start looking at ways that you can migrate from a, a tabular to a, a document based database, there are some really great tools that will allow you to do that. Now, when people think of MongoDB, if you haven't used it in the recent days, in Atlas, for example, we have a cloud-based solution called Atlas. You can get more information at cloud.mongodb.com. This is a fully in the cloud solution and it's hosted MongoDB. And if you want to start your journey and start to look at how you might begin to migrate your data, the best thing to do is head on over there and launch a free cluster instance. There's no credit card required. Uh, it's not time boxed. Like you're not going to run out of time and have to like convert or put your credit card in and have it like bill you or something over time. Just launch a, create an account, launch an M0 size instance. And the wizards are great these days. These guys in growth marketing, they really have worked hard to make sure that the developers get a great experience right out of the box. So when you go to cloud.mongodb.com and you walk through the wizards, it's going to walk you through the process of launching a cluster. I'm going to explain that in a minute. And then once the cluster is launched, the free tier M0 sized instance, it's going to ask you if you want to enable access to your local computer so you can start to manipulate the data from your laptop. 
Then it's going to have you create credentials. I'm going to walk you through the process so your data is secure. And then it's going to ask you if you want to load some sample data. And this is going to be really valuable. It's about 300 megabytes of sample document databases. They're a collection of samples that really represent some interesting ways that you can express relationships between data elements using documents rather than tables. In a tabular database, relational, we know that the COD's rules of normalization call for you to separate your data into separate tables and establish relationships between those tables. With MongoDB, while that is possible, you can create separate collections of documents and express relationships by linking. One of the key concepts that you'll need to wrap your mind around is embedding rather than linking. And these sample documents will show you. They're going to give you a good example of how rather than separating your data, you may be able to gain efficiencies by embedding it. And when I say embedding it, think about those key value pairs again and think about a new structure rather than in your, in your objects. You're probably doing this today. But rather than having a separate table, you're going to take that separate table and embed it into a field. So you're going to have an array within a field. So a field can be a key of value. The value will be an array. And in that array, you can have strings, numerics, and those are, those are single level elements, but you can also embed another document. So you can have a document within a document. You can do multi-level embedding. You can also have arrays of embedded documents. That's how you can gain efficiencies for data retrieval. I do a data modeling webinar on a monthly basis that teach people how to think about creating these schemas for MongoDB. And I always like them to leave with one key mantra, data that will be accessed together should be stored together. So in a document, if I know I'm always going to be reading username, user details, and the orders that user placed, do I want those orders to be in a separate table? If I do, there better be a good reason for it because I'm going to have to issue a separate fetch. Let's talk about this at a physics level. If I can store the data for those orders in the same place that the user is stored, I get the efficiencies of one data fetch, one disk fetch. Now, you as a developer, I'm suggesting that you should be aware of the cost of that. There are costs, of course. When I always fetch order detail with user detail, it would just make sense to me that you would store them in the same place. Now, for relational developers, what typically happens next is, yeah, but you're going to duplicate data. Paul, I don't care. Data is cheap, right? Let's just duplicate it in your code. When you write your data out, you can either create a trigger and a trigger can duplicate the data so you have it in multiple places if you think you need it. But I'm suggesting that you might not. And I think it really just comes down to analyzing the way your application accesses, updates, and manipulates data so you understand where those efficiencies can be gained by storing data together or by separating. When you say that, I genuinely want to look on my past as a developer and anybody who's listening, look on your past as a developer and like seriously think about, is there any time my application database was too big? Mm. Like, it's almost funny. Like, no, <laughs> your application database has never been too big. <laughs> I don't want to say never, because of course, if you work in an enterprise, like what is your application database? Well, it could be a lot of things. That's not what we're talking about here. You know, like for most apps, yeah, it doesn't get too big. So if I don't have to care about that, du du mm -hmm. duplicating my data to have it coherently in a view. Yeah. 
yeah is not something like you should have a problem with it's not something i would have a problem with yeah it's just a totally different way of thinking as a, somebody like myself who's more of a relational developer mm-hmm. let me take this efficient tree of links and connections of my database and let me sort of like flatten it out on a document by document level that's kind of what we're talking about here and what you're insinuating michael is like it's really depends on your data how do you access your data how do you plan on updating your data and that will depend how i migrate from a relational structure into the document structure exactly and i started down that path talking about sample documents in mongodb atlas and those will give you a good idea about some of the ways that we can lay a document structure out so that it makes sense in terms of documents. Now, once you do that, once you start to understand those, you're going to want to take a look at your tables. Now, I can guarantee that if your application has existed for some time and it is relational in nature, you will have a bad time with MongoDB if you simply take your tables and convert them to collections. So the rough translation between tables from a tabular database to a document database is this. Tables become collections, rows become documents, columns become fields. So that's the rough translation of terminology. And if you simply take your tables and convert them to collections and take your rows and convert them to documents, you're probably going to have a bad time. Hmm. You'll probably experience less than optimal performance. It is a way to start, and you can do that to begin, but I would suggest that you break apart your data, look at your application, and look at the ways that your application is accessing and updating data, and take a look at where you can consolidate data elements between those tables and create embedded structures so that you can have some efficiency on your data reads. We do have a great tool, and it's brand new. It's called MongoDB Relational Migrator. And I've been giving talks on this, and it's just so much fun to use. I love it. The way it works, and it's, it's in preview, so you can download this today. I'm going to give you a link shortly. You download this. It runs in a browser, and it runs locally on your laptop, and it's going to ask you for a JDBC connection to your relational database. Okay. And then you're going to be asked for a connection to a MongoDB database. And that can be running locally on your laptop or it can be running in the cloud in Atlas. You'll need to get a connection string for that. So just as you have a JDBC connection string, you're going to need a MongoDB connection string. What's going to happen is when you provide that JDBC connection string, it's going to connect to your relational database and it's going to give you an ERD. It's going to paint on the screen what your database looks like. It's going to draw the connections between tables that you've expressed through foreign key relationships. And then it's going to give you the opportunity to begin to draw lines to this new structure in a document database. And you can create rules with Relational Migrator that state how to get from point A to point B, from relational to documents. And one of the things I love about this is that you can begin to take a look at those foreign key relationships between tables and represent those as embedded structures in your new MongoDB document structure. If I want to even think about and model in my own head, how does this foreign key structure translate into an embedded structure? Mm -hmm. Does this tool sort of have visualizations and view and breakdown that helps me say, well, what about A path forward or B path forward? Can Can I try this or that? Yeah, so it's early days. It does give you the ability to create these rules and then 
execute the migrations to look at what the data looks like in a MongoDB database. Gotcha. It's going to take your data based on the rules that you create and whether you state that you want to take a, a foreign key relationship and embed that into a document structure, it's going to write the data out to your new MongoDB database based on those rules. Now, it doesn't do what-if scenarios, and the relational migrator today doesn't do any kind of performance analysis. But what does happen is if you are using MongoDB Atlas, we have the performance monitor, which is taking a look at all of the reads and writes that you issue to the database in Atlas, and it's going to look for bad form. It's going to look for ways that you're maybe over-leveraging indexing or maybe overloading an array in an embedded structure if you're storing hundreds of or thousands of array elements in a, a nested array inside a document, it's probably not going to be efficient for you. So it'll tell you that. And that's what I love about the performance monitor built into to MongoDB Atlas. We got into this section of the conversation about how do I begin to think about migrating? Well, the answer is probably if you want to begin your journey, get into the cloud, check out cloud.mongodb.com. It's going to give you a free solution to start looking at your structures. There are paid tiers that you can scale without downtime if you do decide that you want to move up the tree. And then relational migrator to take a look at your data structures. Now, my colleague, John Page, one of the, the brightest guys I've ever met, he's clearly expressed that the relational migrator is probably not going to be today, is probably not going to be on the scale of like a multi-thousand table migration. It's not going to be the tool you're going to use to migrate your multi-thousand table database to MongoDB. But what I contend, and this is where we disagree, I, I believe that you can begin to illuminate some of the structural paths that you will take to get from that thousand table to a document structure. And I think the key for me is in whatever I do, increased visibility and increased perspective always give me increased insights. So I want to take a problem and look at it from every possible angle and twist it around. And that's going to give me some ideas about how I want to tackle that problem. And Relational Migrator gives you that. I mean, with Relational Migrator and a free account, I, it's nice I can see you being able to hop in there mm -hmm. and just flesh out an example migration. Hey, what does this look like if I were to run the migration tool? Yeah. Within the migration tool, can you have a hand in some... Because we were talking about like, oh, a table becomes a collection. A column mm -hmm. becomes a document. I mean, excuse me, a row becomes a document, a column becomes mm -hmm. a field. In the relational mapper, can you sort of dig down into how those mappings get carried out? Or is it sort of like a, give me one, give me two, and let's see what happens? No, you do get to specify. So it gives you two paths. Once you get your ERD, your entity relationship diagram from your tabular database, you have a choice to make. You can have relational migrator automatically decide for you, and it's going to make some clumsy decisions like table to collection. Okay. Mm -hmm. And you can have it do that automatically. And you'll get you'll get a dual pane display. I think the default is top and bottom. On the top, you'll see the tabular ERD, the entity relationship diagram. On the bottom, you'll see the entity relationship diagram between documents. And if you choose to have relational aggregator make that choice for you, it's just going to display pretty much the same thing that you see top and bottom. Bottom will be documents, top will be tables and rows. Or you can say start from scratch. And that's where you can begin to click on the tables represented in the diagram above and choose that path. You can choose your path to specify whether you want to use an embedding or a linking structure. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, really great work by Tom Hollander and the folks that uh, are building the relational migrator at MongoDB. Let's say maybe folks use the relational migrator, they're set up in MongoDB. What is a sort of a uh, roadblock that you find teams running into where it's like, okay, I got everything set up, I feel confident about it. Something that has to do with the schema and the way I'm translating it to a document or collection is at the forefront of my mind when I'm doing this. It's really like, I want to make sure I get my schema right. It's Mm -hmm. what I'm thinking about. Is there something that people maybe don't think about as much that a month or six months down the line you have found comes back to bite them that they should have been thinking about in that first step? (laughs) Yeah. So relational migrator, let's take that out of the loop because I have zero experience in, in the real world with it. I've just done talks on it because it's so new. Sure. But I have worked with hundreds, if not thousands of customers and potential customers in the context of migrating to MongoDB. And I think the most popular question I get is like, how do I know whether it's to link or to embed? How do I know what the proper schema looks like? And there is no right answer. We have some patterns that in the talk I gave on data modeling, there's some common patterns and there's some great blog articles that you can read about those common patterns. Like, But I think the thing that most developers face and have a difficult time wrapping their head around is that you really do need to take a closer look at your application, the way your application is is interacted with from the user perspective, and then on the back end to the data. You as the developer get additional levels of flexibility because you ultimately control the way the data is laid out. So you have to understand how and what data is accessed by the application. And it really does involve introspection, looking at the data elements that are interacted upon by the users. I like to use Netflix, for example. When you fire up Netflix, there's a common pattern of use. This initial pane of display that has a summary of data elements, right? You're going to want to make sure that those data elements in that summary are always super fast. Like you want those cached. You want those all grouped in the same place. So when you fetch a movie, you're fetching a summary of those details right with a single read. And then when somebody says, oh, that that's interesting, I want to click on that and go deeper, then maybe there's an opportunity for a secondary call. So mm-hmm. if you're looking to save on your initial fetch of data, maybe there's an opportunity to move that detailed data out to a secondary collection. MongoDB lets you represent data relationships using linking. And linking is very much like relational database in that you separate your data and you use an operator that enables you to join those collections. A join in SQL terms becomes a dollar lookup with MongoDB. So if you're looking to lay your data out in a way that is separated rather than, as like I said with the mantra, data that will be accessed together should be stored together. If you want to separate it, you're going to use dollar lookup to represent those relationships. And by the way, MongoDB is on this never-ending path of efficiency. In our latest release in 6.0, there are massive improvements in performance around those dollar lookups. So you do get some additional flexibility in terms of efficiency and speed for laying your data out. Talking about what's coming up, because you mentioned, for example, linking, great improvements Mm -hmm. on searching and indexing in the background. What other things would you maybe want to get people riled up about that's coming in 2023? Oh my gosh, so much. 
<laughs> uh oh, what did I do? <laughs> <laughs> There's so much. And if you haven't looked at MongoDB lately, like MongoDB runs on your laptop, runs on a server in your data center, it runs in the cloud now with cloud.mongodb. That's the most basic thing. It's like a, it's an open database. You I can, love that. It's an open database. It's an open database. You can just use it wherever. But that's like at the kernel of the architecture. We've built so much on top of that. It, it's been just amazing to watch the evolution of MongoDB over time. Moving into the cloud, as everybody should be, by the way, I think, I'm going to be delivering a talk at InfoShare in Poland in, in May about the necessity of people to look at cloud-native architectures. MongoDB can be at the core of this evolution for you. And I think it's absolutely necessary to start looking at those additional layers in your architecture and where you can become more, more agile, where you can leverage microservices, for example. MongoDB enables you to embrace a cloud-native architecture at every layer of the stack. We do offer a database, of course, that's at the core, but we also offer the ability to leverage Kubernetes as a part of that. We have a Kubernetes operator that, that works very well with MongoDB, um, and that works right alongside MongoDB Atlas in the cloud. When you're choosing a cloud provider, MongoDB can be a part of that. And I just want to mention one more thing. Look, if you need SQL access to your data and you want to use MongoDB, we now offer Atlas SQL. So the ability to leverage SQL to access the data that is stored in MongoDB. And you would do that for that analytical data. You would be able to issue SQL commands against your data that's stored in MongoDB. That's great for data scientists, data analysts. Maybe you're using Tableau or some traditionally relational tool to do your analytics and visualizations of data. You now have the ability to leverage your backend store to be MongoDB and send those SQL commands. That used to be offered through a tool that we had called the BI Connector, the Business Intelligence Connector. Now it's offered in native SQL. At every layer, you can send SQL to, to MongoDB. So <laughs> where it used to be like no SQL and SQL never the twain shall meet, but today it's a mixed bag there. I'd love to give you a link for your show notes that will have a list of all of the things that I talked about so folks can get easy access to those things. Maybe that'll be like mdb.link slash podrocket. Make sure we load that up with all the things we talked about today. Awesome. That'll be easier for folks to remember too. We can include that in the show links. Cool. Thank you for your time and your excitement and expertise coming on to talk about MongoDB. I certainly learned more about the ecosystem and what's possible out there. And hopefully some other folks did too. Oh yeah. And thank you so much for the opportunity. What we talked about today is just the tip of the iceberg. You can join me on the MongoDB podcast at mongodb.com slash podcast to learn more it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Michael.